you for bringing us all together here. And uh, just uh, thank you, uh, Dane, for um, researching all this information and sharing with us so he knows uh, about Revelation and, and your prophecy. And um, be with uh, Carrie and Nancy Lapine uh, since they couldn't be with us. And, um, and Lord, uh, put your healing hand on Nancy. And um, also continue to uh, heal uh, Dan of uh, his uh, gastrointestinal issues, Lord. Uh, and uh, I pray that uh, he's he's uh, be healed and he'd be strengthened, Lord. And uh, just uh, work in our minds and in our thoughts tonight as uh, we're reading this. And and Lord, uh, reveal. Uh, your truth to us and and your grace and uh, just uh, that the knowledge that we learned uh, helps us uh, to grow in you and, and to share uh, our faith with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord. Our study tonight's a bit different than what we've done before. I'm calling it a topical study uh, because it's not found in the text of Revelation. So normally our study is expositive, which means we're following the thought process of the text. Uh, we do have foundations, which we're using to go back and look at old concepts in scripture so that we better understand the goal of Revelation. But uh, as questions came through, I realized this was going to be a pretty important topic for us to uh, make sure we're all on the same page with, and that has to do with our future destiny. Uh, it's something that Peter called our living hope, uh, and that is the, the resurrection of um, believers throughout the ages at the end uh, of history. So we're going to look at, uh, we're doing a pretty deep dive into the concept of resurrection. Um, so we're going to start at the cross, and we're moving all the way forward into what we call the eternal state. Here's what Peter has to say about, uh, about resurrection, and I'll read this one. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So what Peter is talking about here is the promise of our resurrection on the sure foundation of Jesus Christ's resurrection. Uh, this is a topic that came up in Paul's writing a lot as well. Uh, in fact, to the Thessalonians, he came to them exhorting them not to worry that the resurrection had happened already because they were still here uh, and that they would surely be taking part in that resurrection. So this is still a hope that we as Christians can hold on to. And it's not just a hope that's alive today, but it's the hope of life as well. And I think that's what Peter was getting at when he called it a living hope. Uh, it's a hope that uh, just as Christ uh, conquered death, so we through Christ our overcomers who conquer death. Uh, 
However, the, the topic of resurrection and when exactly it happens and who exactly takes part in which resurrections, because there is more than one, uh, it causes a lot of confusion. And for that reason, I think it's, it's a rather daunting task for people to, to understand it, and they'll often ignore it. But uh, something that is always used in the epistles to uh, give the churches hope is something that we should definitely be focusing on as well. So uh, this is Pastor Robbie Dean from Houston, Texas, and he has this to say about the uh, sequence of the resurrections. Uh, actually, could I have... Kelly, could I have you read this one for us? He returns <clears throat> in the clouds. In a nanosecond, the dead in Christ receive their resurrection bodies immediately before the living believers are translated into their resurrection bodies and snatched up to be with the Lord in the clouds. From there, the Lord will return to the Father's house where he has prepared temporary dwelling places for his bride. Immediately following this, the purification of the bride occurs at the judgment seat of Christ, and then Jesus will take the seven-sealed scroll and open it up to begin the process of defeating his enemies on earth. This will take seven years, at the conclusion of which he will return to his, with his bride to the earth, defeat the armies of the Antichrist and the kings of the earth, and then raise the tribulation martyrs from the dead and give them the resurrection bodies. At that time, he will then establish his kingdom. So this basically gives us a giant overview of what happens in our next big chunk of Revelation, which is from chapters 4 to chapters 19. Uh, and unfortunately for us, although it makes sense when you look at the purpose behind the book of the Revelation, uh, our rapture and the resurrection of the dead is not uh, spoken of that explicitly in Revelation. It's taken for granted. And most of that would be because this book of Revelation was written to Christians. And as Paul says in the book of Thessalonians, this is, uh, this is basic uh, understanding of the church's destiny. Uh, so it would have been rather redundant for the book of Revelation to get into the rapture because all of, the, uh, all of those churches receiving the book of Revelation would have had that as their firm foundation. It would be like having to reestablish the, uh, the truth of Christ's birth and resurrection in the book of Revelation. It refers back to it, but it doesn't explain to us how all that took place, because that's already well explained in other scriptures. So we don't see the rapture taught in Revelation. Rather, we see it taught in the epistles. And since we're not doing a study on the epistles... Um, we're doing this topical study where we're looking back at the epistles to see where that doctrine is taught. Uh, based on Robbie Dean's quote there, this is essentially a schedule of what we could expect for the resurrections. And we're going to look at these verses tonight to see how he comes up with this schedule. So Jesus would be resurrected first. That's called the first fruits resurrection. Uh, between that resurrection and the next, there's the church age, and that's an indefinite uh, length of time. So we don't know when the next resurrection takes place on a timeline, but we do know that it is the next thing to happen. Uh, after that, resurrection is going to be the seven-year tribulation. Uh, this understanding of the rapture and the resurrection of the church prior to the tribulation is what's known 
as pre-tribulationalism. Uh, in my email, I linked a, a website called pretrib.org. Uh, there's a lot more information about why uh, the church is raptured prior to the tribulation on that website, but we are going to look at it tonight. Uh, after the tribulation comes the resurrection of the Old Testament saints and the tribulation martyrs. They have the same foundation for their salvation, but a different promise that they're holding on to for a future destiny. Uh, they inherit a different, um, they have a different inheritance, although we share in eternal life with Christ. Uh, and in fact, their destiny is what we call the kingdom. And that takes place after the seven-year tribulation. And we're going to look at why they're not resurrected until the seven years are complete and they're about to enter the kingdom. The kingdom lasts for a thousand years. Uh, we know that because of information given to us very explicitly in the book of Revelation. So when we get to chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, uh, we'll look at why I take that number literally and why most conservative scholars do as well. After that kingdom, however, uh, there will be a judgment of the wicked dead. And this is a resurrection, and it's called the second resurrection. But it is a resurrection to damnation, not to eternal life. Uh, so it's a resurrection to eternal conscious punishment, uh, which is going to be a sad note for us to end on tonight, but uh, it is the last thing in the chronology. So here's our schedule for tonight. Uh, we're going to look at the first fruits and then the harvest and the tribulation. At that point, we'll be able to take a little break and then come back and do gleanings, the kingdom, the chaff, and the eternal state. Uh, you'll notice that a lot of these are agricultural terms. The schedule of the resurrections are often taught in scripture in terms of harvest. Uh, so the first fruits would be the beginning of the harvest to show that the harvest would be bountiful. Uh, and then comes the harvest itself. And the gleanings are those um, basically that are left on the corners of the fields uh, where the poor would be able to come and glean for themselves uh, fruit, even if they were poor and didn't have fields of their own. So that's uh, outside of the harvest section, those who happen to be um, still present and included in that uh, the crop, but weren't taken in the harvest. Um, so gleanings would especially refer to tribulation saints, those who come to Christ after the rapture, during the seven years, um, because the doctrine of salvation is still clear and present during the tribulation time that uh, the offer of salvation is not cut off at that point. Uh, there will be people saved throughout the tribulation. And in fact, uh, it, it may be one of the biggest conversions in all of history um, at that point. Because we're talking about a near, near entire national resurrection of Israel at that time as well, uh, which could be a few million people just uh, within a matter of days. And then last, we'll look at the chaff. And the chaff is what's beaten and found. There is, there's no grain in it. It's just the shaft. There's, there's nothing of value within it. And that is burned um, at the end of the harvest. So uh, obviously, we can, we can see just through understanding the harvest schedule in Israel uh, how, how this will take place. It's, it's a harvest, and then um, 
and then a burning of the chaff. But first, uh, we're going to look at the first fruits because this is our sure promise of resurrection. Uh, Paul and Peter and those who speak of our resurrection planted on the sure truth of Christ's resurrection. And uh, without that resurrection, we would have no promise of resurrection. So this is spoken of by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. And he says that Jesus is the first fruits and the first fruits, as we said before, is the promise of a harvest to come. So he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Uh, and asleep is a term commonly used in Greek and in the New Testament um, to mean death, but it almost, actually, I think in scripture, it always refers to those who are dead in Christ, because the quality of that death is less so uh, than those who are destined to the second death, uh, which is um, the second resurrection. So uh, believers in Christ will always be referred to as asleep rather than dead. Are those uh, maybe referring to, you remember that verse that we uh, read uh, last time during the uh, crucifixion when Jesus uh, when uh, Jesus died and then uh, people, uh, it, it noted in the Bible that people uh, were uh, resurrected um, during that time? Yeah, that's, uh, we are going to look at that. Uh, with the first fruits, the amount of fruit that they would be able to bring to the temple as their first sacrifice uh, kind of gave them an indication of what kind of a harvest to expect. So uh, looking at this uh, in a typological form, meaning um, it, it's a foreshadowing of what's to come, it, it's representative of what's to come. If the only resurrection were one man, uh, we wouldn't be expecting that big a resurrection, but the language used in Matthew 27 about the others that sprung from their graves when Christ died uh, gives right. us indication that we're, we're expecting a bountiful harvest, uh, which, of course, when we looked at the kingdom parables, we saw that um, when Christ came for his harvest in Jerusalem, there was nothing to be harvested. Uh, but throughout the ages of the church, uh, he has grown a crop, although uh, in any one given generation, it may be a minority. Uh, so yes, we are going to look at those who were resurrected with Christ, because quite honestly, that's missed by a lot of people. And it, it may be something that you're all unfamiliar with. But yes, there were others who sprung from their graves, and it said they, they even interacted with people in Jerusalem at the time of Christ's resurrection. Uh, but if our foundation for our resurrection is on the resurrection of Christ, how do we know for sure that he did die and uh, rose again? Because that, that really is also our, uh, our foundation for salvation, our hope that we will be um, justified before the Lord is uh, on the blood and life of Jesus Christ. So let's see, who do we have for readers? Mark, would you read this for us? Sure. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, behold, I have told you. Thank you. So uh, 
for me, it's quite interesting that this account of Christ's death, he was crucified, and resurrection, he has risen, came from an angel. Uh, the angels who fell, fell on one day. Uh, if this is an angel who is lying, then it would be a fallen angel, but there is no indication of that. This is an angel of God, and uh, he's bound to the truth. So he is telling the truth that Christ was crucified and rose again. Uh, so we do have that uh, bit of evidence that Christ was um, dead and that he rose again from the lips of angels. Uh, also, we have a very unique apologetic uh, here in the book of John with the account of Doubting Thomas, as he's affectionately called. Uh, Kelly, could I have you read this one for us? But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thank you. So you could imagine, as you see in the Gospels with the anguish of the twelve when their, their Lord is crucified, uh, that they're reasonably upset, and more so even than we would be if a close uh, friend or relative passed away, but they had an intimate understanding of who Christ was. Uh, so his death came as an extreme blow to them. But for Thomas... It was uh, 11 at that point, I think, wasn't it? <laughs> I think it was 11 at that point. <laughs> yeah, at, at this point, it is 11. At this point, it's 11. But... Uh, yeah, so here we have uh, someone who is very close to Christ, who Christ did tell them that he would rise again. So obviously, Thomas doesn't even believe the testimony of Jesus uh, that he would rise. Uh, and he, he's asking for physical proof. So um, I think it would be fair to say that Thomas at this point um, is a naturalist or a humanist, um, but he is going to soon be a believer. Um, a believer in the resurrection. So, uh, Kelly, could I have you read this as well? And he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it in my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. So, often people will say that I'm not going to believe in Christ unless he appears here before me. Uh, well, Thomas basically said the same thing. And uh, for us, we don't have this presence of the body of the Lord. Uh, currently, he's our high priest in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God. Uh, but we do have the account of Thomas, who, who said the same thing that uh, unbelievers today say. And uh, he, he had the answer uh, given to him that he had asked for, the evidence that he said he would believe he did receive. So we have the testimony now of uh, angels and the body of Christ. And also in the book of Acts, the witnesses testify to Christ. Uh, I believe this is Peter says, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. So we have multiple witnesses as well. In the book of uh, Numbers, it says that uh, 
a testimony must be accompanied by more than one witness. Uh, well, here they've got 11 witnesses saying that we, uh, we testify to this fact. Also, you have the witness of the women who went to the gravesite in the morning of the resurrection and found no body there. Uh, these are all uh, good evidences that Christ surely was raised from the dead. Now, there are a plethora of evidences beyond this, um, but just within the text itself, these are some quick ones that we can turn to. Uh, finally, here in the book of Acts chapter 10, uh, we get to see what exactly the quality of a resurrection body is. Um, does it have restrictions from where we, what we have today is, what is different, essentially? Uh, Mark, could I have you read this? We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. He also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen before him by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So here we do have eating and drinking after rising from the dead. Uh, we had Thomas touching him, putting the putting his hands in his side and in his hands. Um, so these are physical bodies. Uh, we won't be floating in the clouds playing harps. Uh, we have a destiny that Paul speaks of as even more real than our bodies today. Uh, so even eating and drinking. In the book of John, in the very last few chapters, uh, we actually get a rather long account of Jesus eating fish together with his disciples on the beach. And it's quite a beautiful picture, especially the language that John uses. Uh, I love to go back and read that again and again. Uh, but here's to what Mark uh, indicated earlier, Matthew 27, 50 to 53 easy to read right past because you're trying to get to the resurrection of Christ and you totally miss that others were resurrected at this time as well. So it says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Um, I could even ask for hands how many knew that there was a resurrection that accompanied the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, this shocked me when I realized I'd read the book of Matthew probably five times and never saw that the first fruits harvest was bountiful. Um, so just as these... Uh, were risen from their graves. So we can expect to be risen from ours, but not to meander about the city, but to a heavenly hope. And uh, we don't get any more information here on where these resurrected few went. Uh, it is interesting to me that it says many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, uh, that many bodies would be a good indication that the first fruits harvest was a large harvest. Um, some have even thought that this would be all of Israel that had died previously. I think it would have been a bit more specific if that were the case. Um, some have indicated that perhaps it was those who died while Christ was on earth. There's no textual evidence of that. 
Uh, and one of the principles that uh, we live by is where scripture is silent, we are silent. All that we know is that there were bodies raised uh, at the time of Christ's crucifixion, and the scripture says it was many. That was both, um, you take that as two different times that people were raised, that as soon as he gave up his voice, I mean, that gave up his spirit, the tombs were opened, and then also at the time of the resurrection three days later? Uh, all these resurrections of believers, at least scripturally speak, speaking, uh, are looked at as one resurrection. They're all called the first resurrection, just like there's one harvest, but a few phases to that harvest. Uh, and I, I, to me, it's interesting, the proximity of Christ's death and the resurrection of these few. Christ had something to be doing uh, during this time. He was preaching to the spirits of um, uh, in the in Sheol in Hades, uh, but we, we see his power over death. That death didn't really hold him long. It wasn't a conqueror of him. Uh, however, in Genesis three fifteen, it says that uh, the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed, and the seed would crush the head of the serpent. Well, this is the bruising of the heel of uh, of this promised seed. So he was bruised and uh, even to the point of death, but it couldn't hold him. And uh, looking at the language in this passage alone, uh, you can see just how upsetting this event was to all of nature. We've got the earth shaking, we've got rocks splitting, we've got a veil rending from top to bottom, uh, and we have dead bodies springing from the grave. Uh, the the death of Christ was not the death of any ordinary man. The death of Christ uh, was the actual separation of God from himself. Uh, that's the scriptural understanding of death, is separation. Uh, and that's, that's uh, why Christ asks God that if there is any way for this cup to pass from me, uh, have it pass. I don't think he feared at all the pain in his body. He feared God turning his face from him even for a time. Um, so this, I, I'd say this is even a cosmological upset uh, equivalent to the fall of man or the flood of Noah. Uh, this had some very unnatural consequences and the resurrection of the dead was one. Um, and I think it, it shows us perfectly just how much power Christ has over nature. And that's gonna be an important concept that we have uh, in the back of our minds as we go through Revelation, because we're going to see a lot of cosmological events. Uh, and we no need not only to understand uh, that Christ is perfectly capable of these sorts of events, but um, he has the authority, the power, and the right as well to judge the earth. Uh, and so the other folks uh, mentioned that uh, the earth went dark too at that point, right? Yeah, the parallel text, I think in Luke uh, and in John, it speaks of the three hours of darkness. Uh, and that would have been between the sixth and the ninth hour. Um, so yes, it did go dark in the middle of the day at this time as well. Uh, it might even be in Matthew, just not in this uh, excerpt that I have. It might be 54, 55. I've heard that the, the, the veil in the temple was like, was a super huge veil. 
Yeah. And that you veil can... separated uh, the people from the back of the temple where the mm -hmm. sacrifices were made. Exactly. That, yeah. The veil, I think, was that three years. Putting there. a veil was, mm -hmm. was a very symbolic because it now represented that, uh, you know, basically, you know, contact with God was not separated by the veil and, and the, you know, the, the Levites, mm -hmm. or the Levites, that, uh, you know, access from the people to God was now, you know, directly with him. Yeah, and that, that really uh, feeds to the whole foundation of the church, that uh, we are a priesthood uh, as believers, and Christ is the high priest. Well, before, uh, in the, uh, when the dispensation of law during the time of Israel, they were uh, kept away from the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could enter and only on specific occasions uh, where the Ark of the Covenant was behind the veil. And like Mark said, the veil I think was seven layers thick. And uh, even these layers were each pretty thick. So the rending, especially from top to bottom and not bottom to top uh, is pretty incredible. Uh, I don't know how long this veil was, but it was the entire length of the temple uh, and the temple was by no means a small structure in fact at the beginning of Matthew 24 the disciples are exclaiming just how wonderful uh, and large the temple is uh, so this this was no small feat uh, and it's uh, it, again for for God it's a small thing but for us we look at that and we see the awesome power of God again I mentioned it last week, but I just took a trip through the Canyonlands and seeing what God did just with his, with the word of his mouth uh, during the time of Noah, uh, we see just how incredibly powerful the God we serve is. And uh, also the God who has promised us life. So we know that he is capable uh, of doing that. 